Father, in our best moments we do know how marvelous and how wonderful your love is for us. And Father, there are also plenty of times where we need a reminder. And if that's now, Father, please give it to us in this time, in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The pursuit of God. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that phrase? This is perhaps a more fascinating phrase than you think. It's a Rorschach test for our construct of Christianity. If you don't remember, a Rorschach test is otherwise known as the ink blot test, where psychologists will hold up an ink blot and ask the patient what he or she sees. And their answer to that question is analyzed as a sort of window into their personality. Because the ink blot it's not in the shape of anything, uh, but rather it's a canvas for the patient to fill in with their own meaning and interpretation. So that you see, fill in the blank, perhaps reveals something about your personality. And so when we hear the pursuit of God, what comes to mind? Likely, all the ways in which we pursue God. Prayer, the reading and study of Scripture, community, service. Maybe it's A.W. Tozer's book entitled The Same, a book that was formative for me in my college years. And all of these are good things, but the trait that they all share even the book, is things I do to get closer to God. Why is it that we don't instinctively hear in the pursuit of God, God's pursuit of us? The phrase works both ways. But that's not what immediately comes to mind. Why is it? Perhaps there's room for us then to grow, to see Jesus differently, whether it's the first time you're hearing of him or the 1,000th time. Our text this morning is John, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, and when you, will you stand with me in honor of God as we read? This is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice." A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. John is the master at working on multiple levels with one seemingly simple story. And at the most basic level, we're given what's in front of us, our text. Jesus' sermon as the door and good shepherd, and what that sermon has come on the heels of in John 9, which is the healing of the blind man, and after his healing, his interaction with the Pharisees. But behind both of these texts, John 9 and John 10, playing in harmony with John 9 and John 10, giving added depth of sound as a cello gives to a violin, is Ezekiel 34, which personally is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. But listen to this interplay. See how each give meaning to the other. Just as a reminder, in Ezekiel 34, God is instructing Ezekiel to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And as shepherds at that time, it was a term given to leaders and kings. So it says, this is in the beginning. This is Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? But you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, remember that line, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The term scattered there is mentioned three times to bring special attention to it, and it's essentially a one-word summary of Israel at the time. They were in exile, scattered, all around from their homeland, kicked out and ruled by foreign nations. And the easy analysis of the situation was to say, well, the bad guys, Babylon, are in charge now. But the hope is that one day God's going to rescue us, the good guys, and bring us to rule again. Now, that would be the easy analysis, except it would be the wrong analysis. Because, yes, 
Babylon was in charge, and in many ways, the bad guys. But the ironic twist of Israel's exile was that they were in exile because they, in many ways, had become the bad guys, especially their leaders. Israel had been given a special vocation in their election. And sometimes we can confuse it. Oh, election just means you're best friends with God and other people. No, election always entails responsibilities. Election entails ethics. And Israel had been given a special vocation to be the light of the world, the city on a hill, the solution to the mess the world was in. They were to care for the weak. They were to care for the poor, care for the foreigner. In their community and life, They were to be a microcosm of what God intended for all of creation and the means through which God's restoration would come. Yet, they had become entangled in sin. They had been negligent in their responsibilities and to the detriment of those most vulnerable, the weak, the sick, the injured, the strayed, the lost. They had become part of of the problem. So God's word of judgment here is not against big bad Babylon, but against Israel's leaders. And so the giant question begging to be asked in exile and at this point of the text is what is God going to do now? The solution had been to work through Israel, but Israel is now part of the problem. What is God going to do? Now jump to John 9. Now for context, in John 9, Israel is still considered in exile. Yes, they rebuilt the temple, but the presence of God had not returned. And, most importantly, they were still being ruled by Rome. So the easy analysis, again, would be to say, well, the bad guys, Rome, are in charge. But the hope is that one day God is going to rescue us, the good guys, and bring us to rule again. That would be the easy analysis, but that would be the wrong analysis. Just as a summary of John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. He does it on the Sabbath, and that raises the ire of the Pharisees, the rulers, the shepherds at that time. And through deliberation amongst themselves and in speaking to both the healed man and his parents, they're asking, who did this? How did this happen? Why did you do it on the Sabbath? That sort of thing. Well, they decide to denigrate the man as a sinner They say, you're just a sinner. You don't have anything to say to us. Get out of this synagogue. And they kick him out of the synagogue. And so in chapter 9, verse 34, at the end of it, it says, and they cast him out. Now, this is a former blind man, the disabled being some of the most vulnerable members of society. And the Pharisees didn't heal him. So it's as if the sick they have not healed And it's most certainly with force and harshness they have ruled. And as a result, the man has been scattered. So it's the same question. In Ezekiel 34, in John chapter 9, Israel has become part of the problem. What is God going to do? Jump back to Ezekiel 34. This is beginning in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will have to create new ways for them to come to know me. That's not what it says. Behold, I will establish more laws for them to follow. They'll have to double what they've been doing if they want back in my good graces. Oh, that's not what it says either. 
Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And then later in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down. By that he just means rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That's the one true God right there. Don't ever fall in the trap of the image of God as some grumpy schoolmaster always peering over his glasses to make sure the students are sitting upright and obeying all the class rules. No, the Lord God from the throne of heaven with earth as his footstool from a place of transcendent and abundant glory and majesty when the cause of salvation is thrown off course, when his grace has been taken for granted, when his responsibilities placed on his people have been rejected, he doubles down in his determination for their good. He takes matters into his own hands. When his people are lost and scattered, He doesn't blaze a new trail for them to find him. He blazes a trail for him to find them. He pursues them. That's God. Now jump to John 9. This is verse 35. This is right after they cast him out, the blind man. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him... There's the juxtaposition of Ezekiel 34 enacted in this encounter. The Pharisees, the leaders of God's chosen people, are kicking out of the synagogue the very people they should be caring for. And who's there to make sure the job is not left undone? Jesus. God. Wait, which one? Yes. It's no shocker that the Pharisees continue to be confounded by what Jesus is saying and doing, which leads leads us to Jesus' response in our text this morning. I'm the door. I am the good shepherd. But do you see how much is missing if you miss the context? Jesus isn't just picking out some random common image that people can relate to. His narrative is loaded with profound meaning. He is announcing that in himself, God has done what he said he was going to do. This isn't just any good shepherd. This is the good shepherd. And this isn't just any door. This is the door. God has come for his people. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Far, far from the truncated version of believe these sort of maxims so that you'll go to heaven when you die, it is that God has come for you now. He's come to seek the lost. He's come to bring back the strayed. He's come to bind up the injured. He's come to strengthen the weak. He knows you by name. He'll call you by name. Listen to his voice. He'll lead you to pasture. He'll lead you to rest. He'll lead you to life. He'll lead you to life abundant. He'll lead you through the peaks. He'll lead you through the valleys. And thieves won't stop him. Robbers won't stop him. Opposition won't stop him. The enemy won't stop him. Nail him to a cross and death won't stop him. Put him in a tomb and the grave won't stop him. All in pursuit of you, of us, of the world. 
of all who would hear his call and respond. But it's only through Jesus. That's the importance of being the door. All of this is exclusive to Jesus. Identity, meaning, purpose, peace, rest, salvation, it's all and only in Jesus. Gail O'Day, in her commentary on John, draws out the following interesting point. And she says, The images of Jesus as the gate and the good shepherd are intensely relational. They have no meaning without the presence of the sheep. So these I am statements do not simply reveal who Jesus is, but more specifically reveal who Jesus is in relationship to those who follow him. The identity of Jesus and the identity of the community that gathers around him are inextricably linked. Ambition won't give you this. Success won't give you this. Money won't give you this. Popularity won't give you this. It's all about Jesus. It's what all the Old Testament is pointing to, what all the, Old, what all the New Testament is in response to. God elects Abraham, tells him through his family, all the world shall be blessed. Israel takes up that vocation, becomes part of the problem. So who takes up that vocation? It doesn't just go away and disappear and die. Who takes it up? Jesus. That's why none of this is anti-Jewish or or anti-Israel. Jesus was a Jew. But he redefines what it means to be Israel. Jesus sums up in himself everything Israel was supposed to be and do. And now centered in him and in his life and work. Not in whether or not you were born in Israel. The people of God, Israel, are now people who respond to Jesus, Jew or Gentile. And Jesus even hints at this at the end of chapter 10. He's telling his disciples and the Pharisees who have gathered around him, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's a natural question, though, of, well, how can Jesus, how can he be the shepherd and the door? And it's because one, often, once the sheep, once you had gotten them in the sheepfold, the shepherd would lay in the doorway, blocking the entrance for both the protection of the sheep and predators that may be outside. Now, how's that for an image of Jesus? Pursuing his sheep, gathering them, bringing them into the fold, and then once they're there, laying down as the door. So where are you? Because this is the final level that John is working at. He's inviting the reader to place themselves in this drama. Are you in the fold? Content in your place as the sheep of the great shepherd? Full of peace, joy, and the rest of God? Then help those who aren't. Are you in the fold but nervous? Anxious, unsure of the future, look and listen to the great shepherd, Jesus, and follow where he leads. It may be through trial. It may be through tears. It may be through places where you can't see what's in front of you, but he can. 
You're not alone. Or if you're honest, do you not know where you are? And you don't know where to go. Have you tried to find life in all sorts of things only to be disappointed and ultimately let down? Are you desperately trying to find something or someone? Stop. Be still and listen. Listen for your name. I was eight years old and uh, was going to see the Braves play the Astros in the Astrodome. And while we were walking to our seat, it's just a big, you know, just walking along, I hear the announcer come over the PA system to announce that Chipper Jones was up to bat. Now, Chipper Jones was and is my favorite athlete of any sport of all time. So I hear that he's up to bat, and so I just raced up one of the aisles to see his at bat. And I vividly remember it. He hit a stand-up double off the left field wall. So I was excited and uh, turned around only to discover that I was all by myself. So for a bit, I just sort of picked a direction and started walking. And trying to find my parents, people are racing by me all different directions. Of course, everyone's taller than me. I can't see over anyone. I don't know where I'm going. I've never been to the Astrodome before. And so this sort of panic set in. So I just sat down on this ledge that jutted out from the wall and waited. Now all this noise is around me as I'm sitting there. But however many minutes later, I unmistakably, through it all, hear the voice of my mother and the voice of my father. Joshua. Joshua. I look their direction, I see them, they see me, and they just run towards me and just grab me. Who wanted to find who harder? And who found who? The pursuit of God.